Jules Verne's uh, epic narrative called The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, it begins by reports spreading across the world of this gigantic sea creature that um, is spotted and, and, and seems to cause trauma. And so uh, what happens is there's an expedition uh, set out to try and discover and take out uh, this monster that seems to be terrorising humanity. Now, um, if you've read the book or uh, seeing one of the many films um, that have been uh, based on, you'll know that this gigantic sea monster is actually a man-made submarine. And there is this uh, son of uh, an Indian uh, sort of uh, royalty um, called Captain Nemo, and he is running this submarine. And... uh, Basically, he's intent on ruining British imperialism. There's this sort of underlying under, uh, critique of uh, sort of the British invasion of lands and taking out other societies. And, and uh, Captain Nemo was once a victim of this. Anyway, so Captain Nemo goes around ravaging uh, uh, different uh, points. And this expedition wants to hunt him down. And... Uh, Eventually, this uh, submarine attacks the expedition, and the people on the expedition actually find themselves in this submarine uh, with this uh, Captain Nemo taking on guerrilla warfare uh, against various other naval uh, vessels. And um, Captain Nemo is really intent on keeping his nautilus submarine hidden and undetected. Uh, He wants to keep this rumour going of this uh, uh, sea monster. And all his captives on board are really wanting for civilization to discover that it is this vengeful captain um, afoot. And uh, there is this great opportunity and moment uh, in the book uh, when the chance to kind of unearth his secrets comes about. It says, The Nautilus stopped moving. And I went to sleep with the firm intention of waking, and uh, uh, with the firm intention of waking just after a few hours' slumber. But the next day, it was eight o'clock when I returned to the saloon, and I looked at the manometer, like the, the sort of uh, the gauge of the depth, and it showed me that the Nautilus was floating on the surface of the ocean. I heard, besides, a noise of footsteps on the platform above. However, there was no ro- rolling uh, uh, which would suggest that they were on the sea surface. And so I went up as far as the panel and it was open. And as I came out of the submarine, instead of the broad daylight I expected, I was surrounded by a profound darkness. Where were we? Had I made a mistake? Was it still night? No, there was not a star shining and no night is absolutely dark. I did not know what to think when a voice said to me, Is that you, Professor? Oh, Captain Nemo answered, Where are we? Under the ground, Professor. Underground, I cried, and the Nautilus still afloats. Yes, it still floats, but I don't understand. Wait a few minutes and you will. And uh, then we find uh, Captain Nemo replying a little later, Where are we? We are in the very heart of an extinct volcano. 
a volcano, the interior of which has been invaded by the sea after the, some convulsion of the ground. While you were asleep, Professor, the Nautilus penetrated into this lagoon by a natural channel opened at a depth of five fathoms below the surface of the ocean. This is its port. A sure, convenient and mysterious port, sheltered from all the winds of heaven. Find me on the coasts of your continents or islands, a roadstead that equals this assured refuge against the fury of the tempests. You certainly are in safety here, Captain Nemo. Who could get at you at the heart of a volcano? So we have the narrator who's trying to unearth the, uh, the secrets of Nemo. And it is suddenly this moment when he goes asleep that he misses the chance of discovering where Nemo hides. And he actually, when, uh, because of his sleep, becomes totally disorientated and doesn't realise that he's travelled into a volcano now. We recognise that sleep is a human necessity. Um, when you are a parent of a young child, you realise it is up there with bread and water, and if you don't get it, things go downhill very quickly. Um, I have a cousin who used to suffer from insomnia, and I didn't realise the trauma that it would bring. So I am not pretending this morning that sleep is somehow unnecessary. But like everything else... It needs wisdom as to when we doze because it is very easy for it at the wrong moment to lead to ignorance and loss. I really would like to tell you um, a story of me being asleep at work but I still don't have the courage to share it up the front. Um, it is good to sleep at the night time. It is good to sleep in your bed, but it is out of order to do it at work normally. And it is out of order to do it while driving. There are all sorts of moments when sleep is inappropriate and it is wisdom to know when and where to sleep. This is uh, the first verse of the passage that we are looking at in 1 Peter 4 today. And it says, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert, be awake, and be of sober mind so that you may pray. In Scripture, again and again, the distinction of knowing a good time to sleep and a bad time is drawn. And the inappropriateness of uh, of sort of laziness is underlined. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you will find again and again, it's the fool that is lazy, that sleeps in till midday, that can't get enough sleep. In uh, uh, the story of Noah, there is this moment when he gets drunk and then falls asleep and uh, things go wrong there. There is Samson's famous nap in the lap of uh, his mistress and that sees the loss of his strength as his hair's cut off. Um, and most famously, and I was going to bring this this morning, um, but there was this famous moment in Gethsemane where the disciples join Jesus to pray. And instead of praying, the disciples have a quick 40 winks. And uh, uh, Jesus is mortified that they won't stand with him in prayer. And so it should become no surprise that Peter says, uh, be alert. 
Do not be asleep all the time. Do not be a fool in that regard. And he starts off this impetus to be awake by saying, uh, the, end, uh, the end of all things is near. He's saying the full drama of redemption has been played out. Everything that needs to happen for your eternal salvation has been secured. Jesus has come and lived amongst us. He has lived perfectly. He has taught righteously. He has been... Uh, uh, He has been arrested, accused. He has been executed on the cross. He has been buried and he's now resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. All that drama was necessary for redemption. And so with all that done, the end of things is near. Everything God needed to get done for our salvation has been secured. So we can look forward to Jesus' return Uh, at any moment and that truth is supposed to inspire alertness it should inspire Christians to be awake and ready for action it's not that daily sleep is lazy or evil but there is this uh, um, onus on Christians to keep awake to keep alert to watch to um, take note of things that happen. Rather than just let life wash over you, we are to be awake and alert to the situations that come and go. Um, We're not to keep alert because we might miss Jesus' return. That ain't going to happen. When he comes, we will see him very clearly. And it's not that we're to keep alert because we'll um, sort of, we've been forgotten on the last judgment and everyone else gets saved except us. That doesn't happen either. Peter champions a degree of insomnia for the purposes of prayer. He says, be awake because you have to pray. Be alert because you have to pray. You have to keep your eyes open and not be lazy and slovenly because you have to pray. I wonder if there's that urgency in your prayer life or whether you're, you know what, wherever we'll be, we'll be. But Peter says, no, you've got to be alert and awake because that will inform how you pray. And it seems from uh, Peter's line of argument that he is suggesting that the educated and informed prayer is better than being vague. Now, when I pray with my kids, uh, one of them will say, Jesus, make everyone well, Jesus, feed everyone, and Jesus, uh, um, stop bad happening, things happening. And there's this uh, wonderful uh, idea that these kids are praying for everything and suddenly everything uh, uh, will be fixed. But Peter seems to suggest here that being detailed in your prayers is really important. That being specific in the words you use and the things you want to happen is really good. And so when we pray, we should pray with um, an understanding of what is going on. We should have an understanding of what is going on in our lives, what is going on in this fellowship, and what is going on in the wider world. And so this morning, I hope... You've been praying for Barry and his family because um, his wife's uh, uh, father passed away and they've been nurturing this moment for some time and it's come 
and they are grieving. And I wonder if you have specifically prayed for these guys, because that's what it means to be alert. You need to be alert to the needs of the congregation. I wonder, uh, this is perhaps a little bit more private, uh, uh, but my uh, boy, um, one of my boys has got a damaged eardrum and it seems to affect lots of things. And so uh, me and my wife pray daily that that would be healed, that the problem he suffers. We do not just pray, I'll generally keep that uh, boy well. We pray specifically and detailed for that thing to be fixed. Um, we uh, pray um, in our prayer meetings often uh, for the missionaries and I love to name them specifically and the towns that they located in and the people they are dealing with. I wonder if you know the people that you live next to so that you can ask, Lord, I want them to see them, I want them to discover you. I want my neighbours whose names are this, that they may be saved. It is good to be awake and alert so that your prayers are specific and detailed. No, it's not as if God... Uh, can't make up if, uh, if you've forgotten their names for him to come through. But Peter seems to suggest when he says, be alert and awake so that your prayers are specific, that seems to be his um, uh, gist there. Um, how many of you uh, know of the uh, coronavirus that seems to be doing um, a lot of uh, damage and that the newspapers are full of them? And uh, we've been praying for that. Lord, specifically for this thing that seems to be getting worse, that seems to be snowballing. Lord, stop the advance of it. I was um, with uh, uh, someone recently um, who works at the airport and they were suddenly like, you could tell that they were fearful that they were uh, um, sort of subject to people coming out of that region and there was that fear of of being uh, sort of connected to it and it's a case of, Lord, stop the advance of this disease. Be specific and detailed in your prayer. Do not be slovenly and lazy. It's okay for children to go, dear Lord Jesus, heal everyone and stop the bad people. But for adults who have matured in our faith, it is good to be detailed and specific and elaborate a bit. Not because God doesn't know, but because when he makes a work meeting situation um, and sort of seems to intervene so the union rep is really nice to me, Um, then you can go, that's because I prayed specifically for that. And so Peter urges us to be awake and to pray specifically with as much detail as possible. So let's read the uh, rest of the passage. Turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. So it says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, We'll read verse 7 again. It says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and be of sober mind. Why? So that you may pray. Above all. Everyone say above all. That's quite important, hopefully. When someone says above all, I hope your ears prick up and you go, oh, this is, this is something that the writer thinks is important. And that is the case here. Peter says, above all, love each other 
deeply. Everyone say deeply. Deeply. Uh, Because love covers over a multitude of sins. We're going to look at what that means in a minute. Offer hospitality to one another. And there's this wonderful caveat, without grumbling. Uh, People sometimes will be good at offering hospitality and then grumbling how fussy the eater was or they didn't observe sort of social protocol or something or other. So I really hope that we've seen Peter's emphasis of this word agape, which uh, uh, we've looked at in a a, a previous Sunday, um, this wonderful word, Greek word for love that the Christians have sort of taken and run with and uh, made it something of incredible significance. But it seems timely again as Pete mentions it um, that agape love is really important and if you want to know what it looks like then you look first at God because it's the love that God has towards us. God loves us. God loves you. God loves you specifically and individually. It's not this sort of general vague love. Oh, I love people. You know, they're just so interesting. They get up to all fascinating sorts of things. God loves individual people. God loves you specifically. And this love for all these individuals on the earth motivated God to send his son Jesus to live and die for us. And Jesus' death was motivated by the love that God has for us. And so we have this continuation and this picture of love brings action. And then Jesus says, God has loved me, the Father has loved me, and I have loved you. You need to abide in my love and you need to show that love to other people people. It is our duty and privilege to discover God's love for us. We should think on it. We should meditate on it. We should discovering it leaping up from the pages of our Bibles. We should find it in the details of our answered prayers. We should find it in the words of those other Christians around us. God loves us. We have value. We are important to the creator of all things. Our life is not an accident. Our life is not pointless and meaningless. We are devotedly loved and it's a wonderful thing to enjoy and it should be something um, that Christians value incredibly importantly it should be the motivation for you singing it shouldn't be oh um, I don't want to look out of place on a Sunday morning by being the only one sitting down or the only one uh, looking up at the ceiling waiting for the meeting to pass God's love for us should enrich us during the week. And then when we get a chance to uh, express it on a Sunday morning, we should be jumping to our feet and announcing to God through uh, song that we love him too, that we appreciate his devotion. But we are not to be sort of, uh, uh, sort of dumps of love, that nothing goes goes beyond we are not to be something that God's love pours into and then stops there and becomes stale 
as children of God, resting in God's love, we're supposed to lavish it on others, particularly the congregation, particularly the fellowship, the local fellowship you find yourself amongst. It is good to relate to other Christians in the town. It is good to relate to other Christians of other nations and uh, sort of pray for them. But particularly here, this is a venue and um, opportunity for us to practice love. On each other, because you know some of us try and love and aren't always that good as expressing it, and so we need a bit of trial and error, and that's what uh, the congregation has. Now, Peter says this fascinating phrase. He says it covers over a multitude of sins, and you're like, oh, that maybe means that I can get away with anything Monday to Friday and come in here and the Christians just have to love me. So when I come in here and um, I've just made a mess of my entire life and got sort of a uh, a fag hanging out one mouth and a sort of half bottle of gin and sort of still hung over from the night before, you can't touch me because love covers over a multitude of sins. And that is not what Peter is saying. Now, this might, I really like this illustration, um, but it might be a bit too subtle. It comes across well in the reading, and I'm going to read it out and see if um, it's funny to you or not. Um, I'll explain it otherwise. So we've got these two anarchists meeting, these two Uh, people that are kind of uh, working against the state. And if you know anything about revolutionaries, is that you know that they're really prone to argue. Um, I don't know whether uh, uh, you were sort of uh, alert when the whole Brexit saga was going on, but there was this uh, people for remaining uh, in the EU, and very quickly, all all the different people that were uh, looking to remain, they quickly started fighting and little factions developed and it all got out of hand. And it goes back through history. If anyone's seen um, The Life of Brian by Monty Python, there's this brilliant scene where you have the Judeans people front and the people's front of Judea and they seem to stand for exactly the same thing but they've fallen out over the tiny element. And so in this book we have these anarchists and they're meeting together Um, and it says this... um, So, you are Mr. um, Sim, I think, he said. Sim bowed and acknowledged. And you are the Marquis de Saint-Eustache, he said, gracefully. Permit me to pull your nose. That's an insult, an insult that that we've forgotten nowadays, but um, it seems um, in the time that this book was written, to pull one's nose uh, was to uh, 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 insult them. And he leant over to do this, but the Marquis started backwards and he upset his chair and the two men in top hats held Sim back by the shoulders. Again, those are bygone days when to pull one's nose was an insult and people wore top hats all the time. Um, and it goes on. This man has insulted me, said Sim, with, a, with gestures of explanation. Insulted you, cried the gentleman with a red rosette. When? Oh, just now, said Sim recklessly, he insulted my mother. Insulted your mother, exclaimed the gentleman incredulously. Well, anyhow, said Sim, conceding a point, you insulted my aunt. But how can the Marquis de Eustace have insulted your aunt just now, said the other gentleman. He's been sitting here all along with me. 
Ah, it was what he said, said Sim darkly. I've said nothing at all, said the Marquis, except something about the band we're listening to. I only said that I liked Wagner played well. Ah, that was an allusion to my family, said Sim firmly. My aunt played Wagner very badly. It was a painful subject. We are always being insulted about it. That seems extraordinary, said the gentleman, looking doubtfully at the Marquis. Oh, I assure you, said Sim earnestly, the whole of your conversation was simply packed with sinister allusions to my aunt's weaknesses. This is nonsense, said the second gentleman. I, for one, have had nothing uh, for ha- I, for one, have had said nothing for half an hour except that I like the singing of that girl with the black hair. Well, there you have it again, said Sim indignantly. My aunt's hair was red. Now, you may have got it, you may have not, but basically we have this conversation where one guy is just absolutely intent on taking offence at the slightest thing, even when he has to make it up. And uh, the whole book is full of these anarchists quickly descending into argument. Every motive, every word, every action becomes questioned, doubted, and quickly inspires resentment. When Peter says, love covers over a multitude of sins, he means that people who love are not looking for a fight. I imagine that all of us do know, so don't look at anyone specifically, or have known in our lives people like those anarchists that you have to tread very carefully Around because the slightest misstep or badly chosen word, and they flare up that somehow you've insulted their aunt with red hair. That the slightest opportunity they will imagine that you've slighted them. And Peter says, We are in the end of days. God has secured our salvation and Christians in congregations need to live generously. So when you go back for tea and coffee, you aren't alert for people that are uh, talking uh, badly about you or your family. You're not looking for opportunities to take offence when someone is lazy or ignorant in their comments. We are not to be quick at taking offence. We are not quick to get sulky and moody when someone says something inappropriate. We're not supposed to be searching out for opportunities to grumble. If God's love is in your heart, you get to live generously. Your value is already being established. It doesn't matter whether you think Kev is talking uh, bad smack about your mum. It's fine because your value is secure. Your importance before God is established. And you can forgive a multitude of sins. Not because the sin is not bad, but because 
uh, God's love is in your heart. And so we forgive quickly, instantly, if we can. We overlook hurt wherever possible. And we do not create grievances where there were none intended. Now, some of you are like, well, that's a bit much. I'm not sure I can manage that. Um, Well, unfortunately, agape love is far more than just not taking offence, not getting your back up quickly when someone says something that you don't like. In fact, I think agape love, you probably can't practice it in any meaningful way on merely a Sunday morning. I'm not sure that you can explore what it means to love one another in this place if we only see each other on a Sunday morning. Because for most of the time we sat down and we're not interacting, and then we might enjoy a few pleasantries uh, uh, about sort of the health of Aunt Mildred in the back. Agape love means being involved in each other's lives to a considerable degree. And Peter uh, sort of drills down by saying... The first thing that he mentions here is love means being hospitable. It means hosting each other. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and Jesus is talking about himself, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger in you invited me in I needed clothes and you clothed me I was ill and I looked and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me then the righteous will answer him Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you when did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you and the king will reply truly I tell you Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And so Peter um, takes his cue from Jesus about what love means. Love means being hospitable and looking out for each other. It means inviting people over to where you live. It is not complicated. This is not some lofty spiritual truth that is hard to get your head round. It's a case of, if you have shelter, you can invite them round and be a host to them. Uh, 
And in particular, Jesus would say, for those that are struggling, it is really good to get them round uh, uh, to your place. It's when you do it for the people that others overlook or that are difficult or awkward, um, it is really good to get those over uh, because you are really demonstrating that agape love of God. Now, I realise our homes um, are often our safe spaces. You know, I uh, go to work and, and sort of commute for all the traffic and then get a load of grief at work and then you come home and you're like, oh, suddenly I'm protected from all the demands of everyone else. Um, and it's a safe space. I've got three small children, so it's not a safe, quiet space, but it is a safe space, nevertheless. But the thing is, our homes are a blessing. And we are supposed to, if we believe in this agape love of God that he's put in our hearts, we should seek to be a blessing to other people. And we should lend out our homes and allow it to be a safe space for other people now this is not supposed to be a guilt trip you are not having enough dinner parties around your house but it is an invitation to be less defensive go oh no no i couldn't invite anyone around my house you know it's it's untidy or uh you know what uh it's just too much drama or this that and the other and peter says if you love people you will be hospitable you will invite them round to your home. And I could really talk for another good few hours about our church uh, hospitality, um, but I'm not going to. Now, Sam and I have a tendency to be quite reclusive. My favourite holiday ever was when we were on a tiny island in the Maldives and there was barely one, anyone else around. At my own wedding, uh, when all the people came in, I very quickly found it too much and found a sofa to hide in uh, because it was just there was too much uh, going on. And so we do have this tendency to be reclusive and perhaps you do too. But that is not an excuse to ignore uh, the truth that agape love works itself out inevitably in hospitality. Um, there can't be very many people that have come to this church in the last 15 years that Sam and I haven't had round one time or another. Uh, we've hosted the homeless We've had some missionaries. We've had some New Year's parties where I uh, breathe fire. Uh, we've had home groups. We've had prayer nights. We've had prayer walks to the base of our house. We've had Bible studies. We've had youth nights. Um, we had this great one of uh, Sam doing this uh, uh, dance club for uh, some of the uh, uh, girls uh, previously, but we didn't have uh, room for that. We've had light parties. We've had all sorts of moments where we've said, come into our house. Come and enjoy some of our hospitality. It may not be the best hospitality. Kev may be hiding under the sofa, but it's still an uh, invite for everyone to come in. Now, I'm not saying this to say we are awesome at hospitality because I know um, 
I love the idea of having everyone round uh, on a regular basis for a, uh, a gorgeous sort of dinner party with volavons and like those that fondue thing where the chocolate comes down and you dip a strawberry in um, and all that sort of things. But we haven't managed that. Um, but some of you say, oh, yeah, th- this sounds like too much hard work. I don't have a, a partner to help me. Um, I don't have a, a, a house like you do, Kevin, and I don't have any money. Well, um, before Kev, the other one, hit the jackpot and got an awesome wife, before he got an awesome job and an awesome home, Kev lived in a caravan, okay? I would be impressed that if any of you have got somewhere nastier than that caravan. Um, It was in the middle of a field in Tilgate, and um, it uh, uh, it was a fascinating uh, place to go. But despite him living in a caravan in the woods, Kevin invited um, us all over, and all the men folk went over, uh, and we bought some food, and we enjoyed Kev's hospitality, even though he only had instant coffee to offer us. Nothing else at all was in his fridges except uh, instant coffee. But he was a host. And that's all it takes. If you've got a bit of corrugated iron over your head and you've got some sort of bargain basement little instant coffee and a sort of fire to heat the water on, you can be hospitable. You do not need a chocolate fountain or anything else like that. You just need to have space and invite them over. Now, if they don't come, that's not your fault, but uh, it's... Uh, Peter is inviting us to be hospitable, to look out for one another, to specifically invite each other out to the places where we live, to the places we call home, to the places that we invest in, and say, come and share this space with you. So Peter's question to each of us is, who from this congregation is coming round for coffee at your house next? I was really pleased to hear that Tim and Rachel have already got Dom and Kev booked in because it shows a sort of uh, 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 a live example of that. And if no one invites you round, then you get inviting other people round. And um, you keep inviting. And even if it's to your sort of corrugated iron shed with uh, your instant coffee, keep inviting. And... um, Show that agape love that's in your heart. Now, before we get all too inward, and all we do all week is just invite each other around tirelessly to each other's house, um, which would get a bit expensive and boring, um, it's good to go beyond that. Because it is good to be hospitable, not just to this congregation, but to the people beyond this congregation as well. When we first set this church up in 2005, uh, we were encouraged to introduce food at every opportunity. It was in every book I read, and it was in the uh, people that were promoting church planting at the time, and it was in the values of our parent church up at Langley Green. Use food to invite people to things. And catering over the years has helped us learn how to serve. Not 
just to what we can get away with, but what we need to do to make it attractive to people. It has become a good way to show God's love, where we put a hand in our pocket and use that to give food to people that won't pay it back and to try and meet their needs. And over these sort of 15 years, we have seen people of almost every imaginable need come in and we've normally been able to help them out one way and another. And sometimes it's been really basic hospitality. Sometimes it's been clumsy hospitality. I am really good at being basic and clumsy in hospitality. You know, it doesn't uh, uh, figure in my mind all the wonderful ways that other people uh, uh, do uh, catering in. And I'm like, you know what, if I've given them a soggy ham sandwich, then that is impressive, surely. Um, And even the hard-nosed atheists... They are challenged in that because you don't find many atheist food drives. You don't find many atheist sort of soup kitchens. They're often done by people of faith and often the Christian faith. And so this is why over the years we did the burger van and the burger van was not a salubrious emporium of food. It was a little bit run down. Um, and uh, there were all sorts of things that didn't work in it, but we rolled it out, and we were known as the Godburger Church for quite a while. And when they took the van away from us, we just set up the barbecue and did that in the cold and rain until um, someone from sort of food hygiene said, you have one star, and uh, I just couldn't face the public with uh, just one star um, at that point. Um, but it's that motivation drives us to be hospitable, not just to ourselves, but to everyone else. We even, for a while, um, and it's quite a long time ago now, we even tried a food bank before uh, uh, they, were, they were really fashionable. And so we brought all this food in, and we had a nightmare trying to get it in, put it in a place, and then redistribute it to the people. Um, and uh, to be honest, that's, that's probably one of our failures um, in how well the food bank went. But we tried, bless us. Um, and uh, there are some amazing food banks out there uh, now that we've contributed towards. Now, such an attitude and an ability doesn't just happen. Food drives are actually quite complicated. Even now, if someone comes to me, I'm like, have you thought that through, that food drive? Because I know what it takes. Now, wonderfully, we've people amidst us who show us not how to be Kev Taylor hospitable, but how to be properly hospitable in a way that other people's recognise. It has been a massive blessing in my life to know uh, Pete and his families. The Norcross family have been allies of us since 2005. I'm not sure that there has been a steak cooked by us in an outreach and in a barbecue that uh, Peter and his wider family, so Paul um, has been involved before his brother, his mum, uh, Ruth, which many of you know. She's worked hard for us. And uh, before he passed away, uh, uh, Dave Norcross was always there, uh, uh, ready to show us the importance and value of being hospitable in a uh, 
in a way that reaches people. Now, she'll resent me for this, but Ruth Power is quite good at being hospitable as well. And she can, if you want to know how to be hospitable, talk to her. Um, it's not an outreach thing, but Sam and I were a little bit gobsmacked when we got this uh, picnic in the middle of a field at River Camp. And there were like flowers in vases and tablecloths and, and stuff we'd never do for ourselves. Uh, and it was wonderful. And it just seems to come very well to her, whether it's uh, a highly tuned skill or something she's practiced on or whatever. And she can show us the way forward in how to be hospitable. We do not take lessons from Kevin Taylor of how to be hospitable. I am not very good at it. I have perhaps the right motivation, but no skill and no real application beyond that. You know, I think you can just drink out the bottle. Why would you give someone a glass as well? Um, and so we learn our skills from those that are really good at it. So we get Roof and Roof involved, and they're double whammy. Um, I think we can sort of uh, uh, take on uh, however many Michelin-starred restaurants we're competing with. So you may not be able to cook like Roof and Roof, but we can all invite people over for a glass of water. And that's what Jesus says is the sort of basic level of um, being hospitable, where we just offer each other just the, the, uh, the sort of minimum levels of life. A loaf of bread, a glass of water. But with roof and roof around, we can't really stay there. You know, God bless Kevin and his instant coffee, but I think we can do better than just uh, my level of being hospitable, that we can ramp up the ante, that we can be better than just offer cups of water. Because that's fine, but uh, people love to be blessed by far more than that. So let me suggest, if you want to learn hospitality, and Peter says it's important, and if Peter says it's important, it's important, start with Christians. Let them be your guinea pigs. Invite them round for your trial cakes and uh, different attempts at uh, doing meals. Um, They won't hopefully be phased by your dirty mugs and your partially cooked biscuits. Do you know why? Because they'll have read the verse before that said love covers over a multitude of sins. And that means that if someone uh, loves Jesus, they can come into your house and when you accidentally give them the cracked cutlery, they're not going to be faced by it. Oh, they hate me. Oh, they're insulting me. Oh, they're pulling my nose because of this. And Christians will be like, no. I've got the love of God in my heart and I'm just going to enjoy you trying to uh, love me. And then we practice on them and then when we come to an event, like we have Christmas and we try and bless everyone in the area, Uh, we've got our sort of 15th anniversary coming up. Um, I think we're going to celebrate it in June. Um, And when we do that, we'll be able to spoil the community with all the biscuits and cakes that we've been practicing on each other over uh, the uh, six months And so the invitation is go beyond just inviting each other around and go to the lost with your uh, 
fine cappuccinos. Uh, because they are desperate for this. Hopefully we become accustomed to inviting each other around. Hopefully we've become accustomed to being house cats that know how to behave and sort of take your shoes off at the door and compliment the chef rather than, uh, than sort of moan and huff when something uh, isn't right. Because Jesus delights in that and it's an outworking of this agape love. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this simple and clear articulation of what it means to love. Lord God, I pray um, that we would be awake and alert and that our prayers would be informed and uh, detailed and specific and that we would be able to rejoice when you answer them. Lord God, I pray that uh, we would indeed... um, uh, be custodians of your love, that we would enjoy it and that we would be good at dishing us out. God, I pray that you'd help us not being fussy or quick to anger or uh, uh, quick to uh, uh, be slighted, but that we would be good at forgiving and forgetting very quickly. And uh, Heavenly Father, I just pray for the practicalities of hospitality. Perhaps as we look at our home and uh, sort of wonder where any guest can even sit or uh, we've got nothing in the fridge or uh, whatever else. Lord God, I I pray that you would help us all learn this uh, skill of hospitality, that we would be good at inviting people in. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.